Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Midtown Atlanta, it's time for Top Docs Radio, brought to you by Medical Association of Georgia. With over 7,800 physician members, MAG is pleased to advocate on behalf of Georgia's patients and physicians. Visit mag.org and on Twitter at mag1849. Join the conversation on Twitter at Top Docs on BRX. Hey, what's up, everyone? It is C.W. Hall, your host here on the Top Docs Radio Show, continuing our series with Medical Association of Georgia. And I'm pleased to have back with us in the studio, Dr. Patrice Harris. She is the immediate past chair of American Medical Association's Board of Trustees. She also serves as the chair of AMA's Opioid Task Force, which was formed in 2014 to combat the nation's opioid abuse epidemic. She's also a psychiatrist from here in Atlanta. It's worth noting She served as the Director of Health Services for Fulton County, and we'll be talking a little bit about the opioid epidemic today, where things are, progress that we're making through this increased focus on this issue, Um, but it's a big one. It's uh, a lot of people are affected. Uh, 90 people a day die. I didn't realize it was quite that high. It's pretty impressive dying from opioid or heroin overdose every day. So lots and lots of people affected. I, I don't know if you saw this in the news recently, Dr. Harris, but it was either a week or two ago, a couple of officers here in the, in the city had two on the same shift where they revived two individuals with Narcan from opiate overdoses. So it's, it's clearly a big issue here. And, and I'm pleased to have you here with us today to, to get into this t- topic a little bit. Well, thank you very much. I'm certainly uh, pleased uh, to be back. Uh, You are correct. This is a significant uh, public health threat. It's certainly an all-hands-on-deck public health threat. And uh, certainly the American Medical Association, the Medical Association of Georgia, and America's physicians are stepping up uh, to do our part in helping with this epidemic. I know the Medical Association of Georgia Foundation is putting some effort into this topic as well. We got a chance to talk with them about that about three years ago. So in that time, it sounds like some progress has been made. I mean, are are physicians starting to change the way they're prescribing medicines for pain now, sounds like? Well, you are correct. Certainly progress has been made, and we can certainly talk about that. But I do want to put a pin in the fact that we still have a long ways to go. As yeah. we, we said at the beginning, uh, this is still a major public health uh, threat. Uh, but certainly uh, we have made progress. In the last three years, the number of opioid prescriptions have decreased by around 17 percent. Wow. But I always say that's a necessary data point, how, how but not sufficient. <laughs> uh, well, because what we want to make sure is that folks get the right treatment uh, for the right uh, patient at, at the right time. And you mentioned overprescribing, and I also want to make sure that, you know, it, it's important that we have uh, this con- conversation in full context. Uh, we know that communities of color Certain communities of color have been under-prescribed opioids, so perhaps under-treated for pain. So we want to make sure that we we keep that in mind. But certainly it's important that the number of prescriptions uh, have uh, decreased. And the AMA, the Medical Association of Georgia, uh, continues to encourage physicians uh, to be judicious in our prescribing and to start at the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration of time. I'm intrigued by 
the notion that even though we've made an improvement of 17% of the rate of prescription, we're still obviously prescribing a lot. I would think today we've probably got some pretty good options that are not necessarily narcotic or opiate in their or in their origin that might be able to effectively deal with pain. Is that kind of having a, a hand in why the rate of prescription for opiates is down? Well, that's certainly one reason, and it is important that you mention that we have non-opioid, even non-what we call pharmacological or non-pill uh, options or alternatives uh, to treat pain. Uh, we do know and we must, and I have to, to stress this here, we must talk about the evidence, but there are evidence-based non uh, pill therapies such as cognitive behavioral therapy, such as physical therapy. Uh, I also want to point out that there are some surgical alternatives to treating pain. The problem is those alternatives are not always covered uh, by insurance. If they are covered, perhaps uh, there's a higher copay higher financial responsibility for the patient. So in essence, they are not really accessible. And that's certainly something that uh, the AMA, Medical Association of Georgia, has elevated that point, uh, that it's not enough for those therapies uh, to be there. They have to be accessible and available to our patients. Is that a function of them being relatively new and, and therefore they haven't had a chance to really be accepted, if you will, by the various payers? No, I don't think that it is because they are relatively new. Now, some therapies, even some that are on the horizon right now are recently approved, certainly are new. But some of the therapies, I mentioned physical therapy is not new. Yeah. Uh, but for instance, uh, we did a thought experiment and we had um, one of our staff members sort of look at the option between a $10 copay for a one month supply of pills, but a visit to the physical therapist <laughs> was going to cost $180. For that so same $10 of, of care. And $180. Now, that was one episode one of care. One episode of care. And so, you know, we want to make sure that we include uh, that dynamic. Uh, I would say those are incentives that are misaligned, and we certainly have to address that. Now, I do want to say, and recently I heard a, uh, a session at the recent uh, National Prescription Drug and Heroin Summit that's held here in Atlanta. I've had the pleasure of speaking at that summit over the last several years, but there were several in insurers, payers in the room who were talking about that and really understanding that uh, they needed to look at what they were offering and look at those misaligned incentives. So how do you incorporate change into that kind of disparity between the pills that are so inexpensive and yet the, the care that is not prescription in terms of like taking a medicine and actually has effective relief for pain, how, how do you how do you moderate that change? Well, certainly this uh, epidemic, unfortunately, is uh, one motivation for the entire system uh, to look at these incentives and how we we care 
for patients who are who have chronic pain, number one, but also uh, patients who have uh, substance use disorders. So we are having those conversations, but it's going to require that we continue to have those conversations and we continue to unpack the need. You know, unfortunately, one of the things that um, I've experienced and heard as I've uh, crossed the country and talked about this is mainly a surface explanation and understanding. But if we really want to get to real solutions other than feel-good solutions, we're going to have to talk about uh, these kinds of of incentives or misaligned incentives that that you mentioned. Uh, The other uh, issue that we have to continue to continue to discuss is stigma. We know that there is significant stigma still against those who have substance use disorders. I still uh, have people coming up to me saying, well, isn't it a moral failing or isn't it a character flaw? Now, I have to applaud the families who've been dealing with this issue and have come forward because I think once you elevate it, once you talk about it, it begins the conversation and we can reduce uh, stigma. And so folks are coming forward and saying they have an opioid use disorder, which means that we now have to look at the issue of accessibility and availability for treatment. Mm-hmm. And then the other issue around stigma is those patients who truly do have chronic pain. I have also had patient groups or patients who come up to me and said they feel like criminals sometimes when they go to the pharmacy. Yes. So, you know, it's about continuing to have these conversations in contact with an intellectual honesty and making sure that we uh, look at the evidence. When it comes to just the the overall opioid epidemic, I mean, how is it changing? Is it is it the medication that the patients are are getting access to? Is that they're having the issues with? I mean, where 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 is it evolving around its its course since this epidemic really began? Well, I'm so glad you asked that question. That's an important question. This epidemic has evolved, Mm -hmm. and that means uh, that the factors that initially led to the epidemic are not necessarily the factors that are currently fueling the epidemic. Uh, You mentioned uh, the recent issues here in Georgia, the recent instances here in Georgia. We know now uh, that what's happening is that folks are getting fentanyl. And carfentanil, and this, those are synthetic opioids How are they, are that you, are now are coming across illicitly? across the borders. No, these these are synthetic, oh. uh, not not from medical communities. Uh, okay, these I was say, how are they getting are, that? Yes, these are synthetic uh, derivatives, much more potent, which is why you see the the overdoses and why you're hearing uh, the stories that even the one dose of Narcan is not able to bring back some of the folks. So that's another area that we know now that uh, we have to address. And I was just at a meeting in D.C., and the meeting was uh, focused on the synthetic opioids uh, that are now coming across our borders that we have to address. So again, the epidemic is evolving, and that just speaks to the fact that of my original point about an all-hands-on-deck approach, uh, there certainly is a place for law enforcement when you begin to think about those synthetic opioids that are illegally, of course, coming across uh, the border. Uh, But we also have to maintain our comprehensive 
public health approach. It is my hope that we make sure that we don't go back to siloing our treatment for those with opioid use disorder. It needs to occur in a comprehensive, integrated uh, manner. And so that will be important. And again, uh, we are very uh, happy uh, this last year, the Medical Association of Georgia worked really hard uh, to make sure that the PDMPs are now under the Department of Public Health because that's actually uh, very appropriate as to where the state's PDMP should be. So again, comprehensive, there's a place for all of us, but we have to make sure at the end of the day, uh, this is a public health threat that will require that comprehensive uh, multidisciplinary strategy. What was the value of that move? You talked about having it under the Department of Health. What does that do that that you feel is is advantageous? Well, I think, first of all, it's the significance of addressing this as a public health issue. I bet you've heard and I hear uh, every time I am at a meeting to discuss this, that law enforcement says we cannot arrest our way out of this. And actually, that gives me an opportunity to make the point that uh, that has not always been the way epidemics such as this has been addressed. We know that 20, 30 years ago, the tactic or the strategy was to arrest our way out of this. <laughs> yes. uh, if you have an addiction, um, you go to jail. Right. Now, you don't get help there. That, that, is, that is unfortunately most often the case. So I think uh, now uh, folks see that these folks have a brain disorder. Uh, they have a disease. It's a chronic uh, relapsing and remitting disease just like high blood pressure and just like uh, diabetes. And so it does as much as possible belong in the realm of, uh, of public health. That being said, there is a place for law enforcement. And I think we're settling into a, an understanding of the need for that comprehensive uh, approach. When it comes to trying to, the, the patient's access to that care, that you talked about earlier, where there's other things we can do that are not even medication related, but they're treatments. I mean, are they well known such that a physician would have that on their on top of mind whenever I'm trying to decide what to do for this patient, whether we should even start them on an opiate versus taking that non-prescription approach? I mean, how... How common are they in terms of their availability? Well, they're known, but uh, and they may or may not be available. Uh, you and I are fortunate enough to live in a metropolitan area yes. uh, where we have options. Right. Uh, but we have many folks, as you well know, who live in rural areas. And so they may not have the ability to have a comprehensive um pain uh, clinic, and, and I do mean a, a, a true pain clinic, and they may not uh, be able to have therapists and psychiatrists who are, are trained uh, in cognitive behavioral therapy. There may not be many uh, physicians who are trained in medication-assisted treatment. And by the way, the AMA and MAG have definitely encouraged physicians to, all physicians, not just those who are, are specialists in addiction like me, to get trained in the medication-assisted treatment. That's the buprenorphine outpatient treatment. So uh, when, we, when we discuss these issues, we have to make sure that we appreciate that uh, not everyone lives 
in an urban area or where there is access to a lot of alternatives. Uh, but physicians know these alternatives, but these are the many factors that affect whether patients um, can get access to the non-opioid and non-pharmacological alternatives that are out there. When it comes to trying to change the policy, change the way we do things, I assume this is becoming quite a topic of discussion at the various association meetings where the groups of physicians are coming together. I mean, I guess that's where you have to try to disseminate this kind of information to make people maybe change their practice. Well, uh, for the physician community, again, um, we have certainly taken leadership on this issue. Um, You mentioned in the beginning that the AMA convened this task force in 2014. And what we learned is that many physician groups are already uh, working on these issues. Medical Association of Georgia has been working on this issue since 2011. Many associations, uh, state medical associations, as well as national specialty societies, were working on this issue. And so what we've been able to do with the task force, uh, which is comprised of 17 national specialty um, organizations or representatives from those organizations, and about eight or so state medical associations, was to amplify the effort that was already going on, to better coordinate and to collaborate, and to learn what other states are doing. Uh, so that when states uh, want to try something, they don't have to reinvent the wheel. There are the lessons learned from other states. And our new microsite, the AMA Opioid Task Force microsite, really talks about that. And it really is the place where physicians can go uh, to learn about how to increase their educational um, or education around the issues of pain uh, and substance use uh, disorders. We have um, information regarding uh, PDMPs and our encouragement of uh, naloxone and those Good Samaritan laws, of which we do have uh, here in Georgia, the 911 uh, amnesty law. We also talk about the safe uh, storage and disposal of these medications. So we have, physicians have, again, stepped up to our responsibility. Um, Immediate past president a couple of years ago, actually, he just uh, rotated off that position, sent out two calls to actions uh, for for physicians to prescribe more judiciously, as I said earlier, and to start at the lowest effective dose uh, for the shortest duration of time. So we are working hard. uh, Physicians across this country are working hard uh, to continue to get uh, the word out about what we can do. But again, This requires an all-in proposition. And so uh, we need our policymakers to make sure that treatment is available. Only 2 in 10 folks who want treatment for substance use disorders get it. Oftentimes they get a telephone number to call. Perhaps there might be a slot available. That's unacceptable. Right. We also don't give grants for cancer treatment. A treatment for substance use disorders requires comprehensive treatment, just like everything else. So we need our policymakers to make sure that treatment access is appropriately funded. We also need our insurers and policymakers may have a role in this to make sure that these alternatives to opioids uh, are available. In a, in a manner that our patients can have access to them as well. So again, this really is going to take us on. We know law enforcement um, is involved, of course, uh, making sure that the, these, uh, the fentanyl 
and this very dangerous, uh, even carfentanil, these opioids that are 100 times the potency. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I think what's happening is um, folks who are using, folks who have a substance use disorder, don't realize. They think they're taking heroin. Right. Which is in and of itself, you know, dangerous. Uh, but when it's uh, mixed with the fentanyl, the even uh, more powerful car fentanyl, just to let folks know, that is a anesthetic for uh, large animals. Wow. Uh, but they don't know that. So, again, law enforcement has a role there. So, so this is an all-in uh, proposition, but uh, certainly physicians are on this, have taken a lead in this, and will continue to take a lead uh, to make sure that we reverse this epidemic. I was going to ask you when you talk to your your peers around this topic, how they're responding. It sounds like obviously it's enthusiastic. It's not saying, wait and let, let me see some more studies or things like that. It's, it's understanding clearly this is a big issue and changing how many I give, for example, or even if I give an opiate as, as my choice is it's clearly becoming more top of mind, obviously, with the news that we're seeing today. Absolutely. Uh, top of mind and more discussions. And we encourage our, our uh, patients to talk with their physicians. And, and, and it may be that our treatment goals are different. Uh, and again, each treatment decision, and, and I want to emphasize this, must be between the physician and the patient. And we should not minimize anyone's pain, uh, but perhaps... Um, you know, we uh, should talk more about uh, function and that perhaps the expectation is not to get to zero, but perhaps the expectation is to make sure uh, that the person is functional. But again, those are conversations that should be ultimately between the physician and the patient to decide what is the best treatment option. Now, of course, we know that there are external forces that decide whether the treatment option is available. But at the very beginning, the start of the decision regarding the treatment option, whether it's a pill, whether it's a physical therapy, or whether it's a surgery, should start with the patient and their physician. If you had a chance to say something to the to your peers out there that maybe haven't gotten fully on board, I mean, what would you say to them? And then also... Uh, maybe share a couple of good resources, the the task force site you mentioned, so that folks can go and get a little bit more specific information about how they can either prescribing options that they have or or information that they can get so that they can continue to help at least move this trend line toward the positive instead of uh, going the wrong way. Well, for the physician community, it's about the initial recommendations that we made uh, as an opioid task force, which is to to use your state uh, prescription drug monitoring program. I used the term PDMP earlier. That's what that is. Now, we know that not all PDMPs are created equal, and some of them are not very user-friendly, and some of them don't uh, have real-time up-to-date information, but we are encouraging physicians to register for, use a PDMP, and then work with state officials to make sure to make sure uh, that 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 PDMP is user friendly. The physician can use that as a tool to decide. Certainly, to increase and enhance our education on pain, on opioids, and on substance use disorders. And finally, again, as I said before, we continue to encourage physicians uh, to prescribe judiciously um, and only prescribe opioids when the benefits outweigh 
the risk. And then to the general public, we want to make sure um, that when you do have one of these medications in your uh, medicine cabinet, to please store it appropriately and dispose of it appropriately when you don't need uh, any more of the medication. And I really want to give a shout out to MAGS and the MAGS Foundation Think About It campaign because they do have information on there for both professionals and for the general public. And MAG also offers resources as well. If you go to mag.org slash resources slash education, you can see some required continuing medical education around the topic available for you there as well. And we certainly appreciate our partnership with Medical Association of Georgia to be continually bringing us guests like yourself, Dr. Harris, and topics like this that um, will hopefully be beneficial for our our listeners to check out because so many of them now, because of this partnership, are physicians like yourself. And, and I think this is an opportunity to get a chance to talk straight to them. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast if you haven't done so already. That way, you don't have to necessarily catch the live show. It'll download the podcast straight to your device when it's convenient for you to listen to. You can check it out. We hope you turn around and share this information put out on LinkedIn and other social media platforms. Clearly, it it is a big issue that we're really trying to make a dent in. And so just clicking share and putting this information in the hands of somebody else out there that may be taking care of patients might actually be the piece that helps them uh, change the way they're, they're providing care to their patients around pain. So we'll say thanks in advance to everybody who does help us get the word out and share this information. And Dr. Harris, I really appreciate you making time. I know that you've got a practice to run in addition to your work with the task force. So you're, you're a busy person. I appreciate you making time to be here with us in the studio. Well, thank you for having me. It's been my pleasure. Everybody out there who made us a part of your day today, I want to say thank you so much. I look forward to catching up with you next time. We'll see you then.